You ever felt like God has placed you in an oven? Just life, just the heat keeps going up. You're like, God, get me out of here. Why have you placed me in here? They found an oven in the archeological remains in Thessalonica. And in one sense, the Thessalonians have been in this oven of circumstances. The heat of persecution keeps going up. What do you do when you find yourself in an oven? Do you say to God, hey God, uh, like a turkey in here, poop, pop, I think I'm done. I think I'm ready to get out. And God's like, uh, no, we need to turn up the heat. You're like, God, I'm done. I've popped. I'm ready to get out of here. And I think what makes it even more challenging is when you don't see the reason for him turning up the heat, right? It feels like meaningless suffering. It's one thing to be meaningful. I get what you're trying to do here. I don't like it, but I get it. But when it's meaningless suffering, it's so much more challenging. And today as we look at the ending of the first chapter of Thessalonians, we're gonna look at that. What does it mean for God to be glorified in us? And what if we began to pray, God, exalt yourself in my circumstances rather than what I typically pray, which is exit me out of those circumstances, right? In fact, today we're gonna look at two ways God wants to be glorified. He wants to be glorified in others, And he wants to be glorified in us, his saints. Now to do that, we're going to start by looking at what it means to be glorified in others. That I pray, God, exalt yourself in my circumstances, (laughs) even if I'm done and want to get out of here. Because I want people to see you in me in the oven of life. Now when you read Paul's words, They can be so verbose. He's like the master of the seemingly run-on, 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 run-on sentence. Here's what it looks like when you're reading it in 1 Thessalonians. When he comes in that day to be glorified in his saints and to be admired among all those who believe because of our testimony among you who believed. Therefore we pray always for you that our God would count you worthy of all this calling and fulfill the good pleasure of his goodness and the work of faith with power and the name of the Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and Lord Jesus Christ. So one of the reasons that we're looking at diagramming these sentences is to figure out what he's saying. Because saying to God, glorify yourself in me so others can see what you're doing in me is not easy to do. So today, let's look at this long run-on sentence that Paul has for us and see if we can figure out exactly what he's saying. Now remember, chapter one, the very beginning, Drew spoke about God giving us grace and giving us peace, shalom, in our circumstances. Last week, we talked about One of the ways we find that is we remember two promises, that God repays the troublers, those who trouble you, and gives you who are troubled rest. With that in mind, we pick up on today's promise. He starts by saying, when's this gonna happen? When can I know God is gonna repay the troublers and help me with this thing? Well, it's when he comes when Christ returns, it's in the final day. 
in that day, we'll dig down again on the day of the Lord. But when he comes in that day to be glorified in his saints. God wants to be glorified in you and I. He goes on, and, all right, and what? And notice that to be lines up and to be not just glorified in his saints, but to be admired among all those who believe. Now notice saints and those who believe rhyme and glorified and admired do. So what is God saying? What he wants to do in your circumstances, in life, to bring meaning to your suffering, meaning to your difficulty, is he wants you and I to live in such a way that the Christians around us say, wow, God lives there. I've never seen such courage. I've never seen such wisdom. I can't believe they were able to forgive. I can't believe they were able to to trust God. Man, I am glorifying God as I see you live out your faith. I am admiring God as I see you live the life you're living in the oven and fire of life. Then he says, because as that happens, the testimony, our testimony, what we told you would happen among you was believed. God wants people to believe that he is real and he works in your circumstances. How are people gonna see that? The unconvinced as well as other Christians. They're gonna see you and I living it out. So then he says, therefore, in light of that, we pray. We pray that God would be glorified in his saints, you, and be admired among those who believe. It's a great quote from Charles Spurgeon I wanna share with you. It goes like this. We will admire that God has done in other people and in us, those who look upon the saints will feel a sudden wonderment of sacred delight. They will be startled with the surprising glory of the Lord's work in them. We thought he would do great things, but this, this surpasses conception. Every saint will be a wonder to himself. I thought my bliss would be great, but not like this. All his brethren will be a wonder to the perfect, perfected believer, He will say, I thought the saints would be perfect, but I never imagined. Such a transfiguration of excessive glory would be put upon each of them. I could not have imagined my Lord to be so good and so gracious. And he's gonna do that when? In that day. Let's look at that day together. We talked a little bit about this last week. But again, we, we all want to know meaning when we're in difficulty. So you gotta keep focused on what's gonna happen tomorrow. I'm living in light of what I know tomorrow. When he comes, all right, that motivates me now based on what I know about the future. In that day is a specific period of time the Bible calls the day of the Lord. How would that motivate me to want God to be glorified in me so others could see? Well, let's remember the Bema seat. So remember, in the future, 
is a time period called the day of the Lord. And it includes all kinds of pieces, parts. Seven year tribulation, thousand year reign, new heaven, new earth, lots of parts of it. Well, let's zoom in and look at that seven year period called the tribulation. Now, right before that is something called the rapture. First Thessalonians mentioned that Christ comes and he captures, or in Latin, raptures the church, brings them to heaven. Then, in heaven, while there's all kinds of bad stuff going on down here on earth, we're in heaven at what's called the Bema Seat of Christ or the Judgment Seat of Christ. This is a word Paul stole from the Greeks and Romans for their reward banquet at the end of an Olympic win. You're rewarded for how well you ran. You see, in that day, at the Bema Seat, the Judgment Seat of Christ, you and I will be rewarded for all the ways we lived and we persevered and we kept on keeping on, we kept trusting, we kept believing. And other people saw it and their view of God got glorified. They admired God more because of how we lived. And he says, if you can live today in light of what you know tomorrow, you can say, I wanna live so that day I'm standing before my master. I'm standing before my Lord, my savior. And he's placing treasure after treasure after ribbon over me and he's saying, well done. Well done, my good and faithful servant. And when you realize that what felt like meaningless, ongoing, is this ever gonna be over? Am I done yet? Moments. In that day, God will say, here's what I did. Here's who is watching. Here's how I use this to improve their faith, to grow them. In that day, you'll be rewarded for all the people who observed you and I and they glorified God and they admired God in the midst of it. Now, maybe as we've been looking at all these different pieces parts, you're like, Chad, are you gonna talk about all that? Well, we're talking about a little bit of it. But there have been several series, I've dug deep into this for 13 weeks, 15 weeks, even 20 weeks. So if you're interested in that, and you wanna dig down more into the end time stuff, go to our app. If you go to our app and scroll down a bit, there's a little button called Book by Book. And that's where we teach through every book of the Bible and you can click on different books of the Bible. For example, if you click on the book of Revelation, that graphic was designed by our graphic team about 10 years ago for the book of Revelation. And I teach verse by verse through the entire book of Revelation using that graphic. So feel free to use that on audio to listen through the teaching of Revelation. I also discuss a lot of that in a series we did even five years before that on Daniel called Living in the Lion's Den. Click on Daniel, you can scroll through that. But if you're specifically interested in the Bema seat or the judgment seat of Christ, you can search with keywords using Bema, judgment seat of Christ, or a whole message I did called God's reward banquet. Now this idea was to motivate the Thessalonians because they, this is not theoretical. They're in an oven of persecution in Thessalonica. Now here's what Thessalonica looks like today. Very modern, big city but it was a major metropolis in its day as well. It just looked a little bit more like this. But did you know wherever you went in a Greek Roman city, the whole city was designed by Alexander the Great to glorify the gods? You see, glorifying your gods was a way of life. When you came to the marketplace, 
you were doing business in the name of Zeus, in the name of Demeter, in the name of Dionysus. When you ran for the games and you ran for your team, you ran not just for your country, you ran to bring glory to Nike. You ran to bring glory to Apollo. You thought in these terms all the time. I shop, I work, I sell, I run to bring glory, credit, weight to, so people would admire the God I pursue. Now, this happened in marketplaces. These are some archaeological ruins in Thessalonica of a marketplace, the marketplace of Zeus, where you did business to glorify your God. This was a, a theater. The theater was designed to tell the stories of the gods. What if you and I begin to think about our life? How do I live in such a way that God would be glorified in others? Now, how about you? What does it look like in challenging circumstances, in difficult circumstances, to glorify God? I was talking to my cousin Jonathan recently. I've mentioned that my uncle passed away. And my uncle had a very difficult relationship with everybody, really, but certainly with his son. And in the middle of those last couple weeks of my uncle dying, he started making some unusual requests, some kind of crazy requests. And my cousin was the executor of the will and he was getting frustrated. This brought up just all the years of ways in which he and his dad had a very, very difficult relationship. So he called me up. I got a text one day, it said, hey, could we talk? I said, sure. So I got on the phone, he explained the circumstance. He explained all the ways in which this is just levels of crazy and for years he'd worked on forgiving his dad, learning how to set appropriate boundaries, but this was too much. And he just was done. Just, I'm wiping my hands of this, I'm washing my hands of this, I'm, I'm just done. He finished this story and like with your story or my story, like, wow, you shouldn't have been treated that way. And you shouldn't have had to go through that. And you got every right to be bitter and every right to be angry and every right to just wash your hands and say, I'm done. And that's how I felt. Listen to the story. And he says, well, what, what do you think I should do? I said, well, and I felt like the Holy Spirit gave me a, a phrase from the Bible to give him I said, you've worked so hard through your life to honor your dad, to try and forgive your father. I don't know if your dad has a few days left or a few weeks left, but you have run this race so well. I would just encourage you, whatever it looks like, the Bible tells us to run the race set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, but also forgetting those things which are behind me and pushing forward to those things ahead. What does it look like? for you to finish well. If your dad dies tomorrow or two days, you don't want to end after all the work you've done with that broken relationship. Finish well. He hung up the phone and said thanks. At the funeral, a few weeks later, when he had passed away, he shared that he and his father ended their time as friends. And he referenced the conversation he had with me. He said, the advice I got 
from my friend, my cousin Chad, wasn't what exactly to do, but to think through the lens of finishing well. I think what I love about that is that I got to admire God's work in my cousin as he was glorifying God in the oven. (laughs) I'm done yet, God, I'm done. And other people at the funeral got to admire and glorify God because of how he acted. So what does it look like for you and me in our oven to allow others to glorify God in our circumstances? Now the second thing we wanna look at is not just what does it look like to be glorified in others, but what does it look like for God to be glorified in me? Now to do that, I need to start praying differently, right? Remember the I pray? I need to pray, (laughs) God, glorify yourself in my circumstances rather than praying that God would exit me out of my circumstances. That's the idea here. So what's he say? Therefore, we also pray always for you. Always for you. He wants them, the Thessalonians, to realize that he is praying for them, that they could have what? What's he praying about? That they would live in such a way that God would be glorified in his saints, in them, and to be admired among all those who believe. I want people to see God in you, and I want you to see that God is being glorified or working inside of you right here and right now. To what purpose? Why? Well, that, okay, what's the that? We're praying that something's going to happen. That our God would count you worthy of this calling. What does that mean? Well, he goes on. And not just that, but that he would fulfill all the good pleasure of his goodness. So we're praying that part of God being glorified in you is that God counts you worthy of the calling and fulfills all the good pleasure of his goodness. That, and here's another that, we pray that, the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and the work of faith with power, and here it comes again, may be glorified in you. So see up here, we have glorified in his saints. He clarifies, you're one of his saints. So we want to pray that the work of faith with power may be glorified in you. So he's praying that people see what's going on and that God's being glorified in you. Now, we need to look at two phrases here. One which is, what does it mean that God would count you worthy of the calling? Almost feels like, hey, God invested in you. I hope you, uh, I hope you prove yourself worthy. I hope you earn it. Right? Kind of feels like that. But the word here, God would count you, is a Greek word. And the Greek word is axio. Judge you worthy. Again, back to an Olympic banquet. It was also used in a, a, a rule of law in those days, but also in Olympics. You're judged worthy that you came across the line. You live consistent with what God gave you. Because the second Greek word is related to the calling. The word calling is a Greek word, classis, which means your feast invitation. 
Are you living, are you judged worthy, are you living consistent with the fact you were invited to the feast? Ah. In fact, in uh, Ephesians 4.1, it clarifies this. It says it a little bit differently that helps show you that God wants you to realize you are worthy. He gave you his worth and walk consistent with that. Here's how he says it. Therefore, as a prisoner of the Lord, I beseech you to walk worthy of the calling. Live consistent with how valuable God has made you, with which you were called. And then he says, here's what that looks like. With lowliness, that's humility. With gentleness, with long-suffering, patience under duress, bearing with one another in love. That's what it looks like to walk worthy of your calling. You're living gently, humbly, and lovingly toward others because you want to walk consistent with what God gave you. He invited you to his feast. He gave you patience and gentleness and love. So let's look at that together. Because he also says he wants us to fulfill God's good pleasure. What does it mean to glorify God by fulfilling his good pleasure. Well, again, think of the Thessalonians. They were used to people glorifying their gods. Ever thought of your tennis shoe, Nike? Well, Nike was a god of the Greeks and Romans. There's Nike. When you ran the race, you ran it to bring glory. Look what Nike has been doing in me that I can run and outrun everyone else. I have the strength of Nike. And the word glorified actually comes from a Greek word as well. It means to hold in high esteem. Someone would take their horse through downtown. As they were leading their horses through downtown, they would have a cart behind them. And on the cart, you would see a statue of their God. There's Demeter. There's, There's Apollo. I want you to know that when I work, when I endure, I am bringing honor or bringing glory, or bringing attention to the pleasure of my God. I serve, I lead, I work at the pleasure of my God's. Does that phrase ring a bell to you? You know, to feel the pleasure of God? That line was made famous in Chariots of Fire by Eric Liddell. Eric Liddell was a runner who won the Olympics and broke the world record of the 400 And he did that in 1924 in Paris. But he was most famous because he was a very strong Christian. His family had all become missionaries. I think it was his sister and his parents. And they wanted him to be a missionary and he felt called to be a missionary, but not yet. His sister was harassing him one day. Why are you doing this other job, this Olympic runner job when you should be in China as a missionary? And he said, because when I run, I feel his pleasure. I was built to do this. I feel the pleasure of God when I run this. When he came to the Olympics, the Olympic race he had was scheduled for Sunday and he felt very, very convicted not to run races on the Lord's Day, on the Sabbath. So he disqualified himself and had to switch from the 200-yard dash to the 400-yard. Now, I I ran track. There is a huge difference between the 200 and the 400 but he had a plan. His plan is crazy. In fact, 
the guy who was right behind him, who was the leader in the world, uh, thought it was crazy as well. No one thought. In fact, they made fun of him in England. They made fun of the fact that he wouldn't run on Sunday and that he had this core conviction. There's no way he was going to do well. But he, he qualified. He said, my plan was to run the first 200 yards as fast as I can. That's not how you run a 400. You don't set the pace for a 200. You're going to wear yourself out. He said, my plan is to run as fast as I can for 200 yards and then trust God to run the second 200 even faster. The starting block went off. And sure enough, he took off and he ran a pace that the guy behind him thought was crazy. And at the 200-yard mark, he pushed in and went even faster. All of a sudden, he crossed that line with his head back and his chin up, and he broke the world record. Most people didn't think he would finish, didn't even think he would qualify. He broke the world record. And he said, it's because I had the strength of God. I could feel his pleasure. I held to his convictions. I obeyed what I thought was his commandments to me. But then after he won that, he didn't just bask in the form and, and, the, and the celebrity of being a world record holder, an Olympian. He felt called to go and be a missionary to China. However, it was during that time that it became occupied by Japan. So he mostly found himself helping kids in this community running recreational leagues there while it was occupied. He had to keep his family protected. He sent his wife and kids to Canada to be safe during the war. And he ended up dying right there in that recreation center. But those who observed him said, oh, I don't think I've ever seen anyone live a life like Eric Liddell. He lived with the pleasure of God. It was like being face to face with a saint. He brought such joy to every moment. The way he served the children, the way he engaged with them and dialogued with them. He lived a life the glorified God. In the same way, when he ran, he could feel God's pleasure. When he served, he could feel God's pleasure. And people around him could see it as well. That's what it means to live according to his pleasure. Now remember, Paul said there were two that's. That, the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, right? He's talking about that. But he wants you to walk worthy of the calling and to fulfill all the good pleasure of his goodness. The second that, that the name of Jesus would be glorified. The name of Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you and in you in him. It's happening both ways. In you and you in him. What motivates this? What's the driver for this? Well, he says, it's the grace of God. It's everything God has given you and I. Glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. The reason we want God to be glorified in us is we want his name, right? That the name of Lord Jesus Christ will be glorified in you and in me. We're living to bring pleasure to God. We're living, walking worthy of what that name did for you and for me. So what does that look like for you and I? Well, what it means is that we want to ask God to inflate us, right? You're getting deflated by life, cooked in that oven. God, inflate me with three things. Love, 
faith and hope. Say, God, I need you to inflate me so other people can see it's you, not me, with more love than I currently have, more faith than I currently have, and more hope so others will admire your name. And what happens when something gets inflated? Well, let me go back to Thessalonians chapter 1. He mentions these things, faith, love, and hope. He said, you're doing it right now because your faith is growing exceedingly. And the love of every one of you is abounding toward each other. I'm seeing it. God's inflating your your faith and your love and your hope. And remember from the first chapter, verse 4, and then in verse 12, that God may be glorified in you with faith, hope, and love. Now think of it like a balloon. You've been crushed down and smashed by life. And you say, God, I I need you to inflate, to fill me up. So God, (gasps) he begins to breathe in, right? And And it's not your sources. It's not your wisdom. It's not your strength. It's no, I was out of it. I need God to (gasps) breathe into me. And all of a sudden, I'm not perfect, right? There's still some, some squishy areas, but... I feel that there's more and people see there's supernatural inflated by God faith. Inflated by God love. Inflated by God hope as I'm going through circumstances. And every day I say, God, I need more of you in me. And I come back to God daily. God, inflate me again. And as he does, other people begin to admire the name of the Lord. So that's my prayer for you, that you would let God inflate you with his love, his faith, and his hope, that the name of the Lord Jesus Christ would be glorified. So we sing this next song together. It speaks of the beautiful name of God, what it looks like for you and I to serve, to give, and to live so that he would be glorified. Let's sing together. Father, I thank you for this reminder that you want to glorify yourself in each person in every single circumstance. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.